0: You can grab your Bibles. We'll be uh, be back in the book of James uh, this morning. We'll be uh, in James chapter 4. We'll be finishing the fourth chapter. We have just a handful of weeks left in the book of James. And um, hope and pray. It's been encouraging and challenging. It's been challenging for me and in very good ways. Uh, Had a chance to spend some time with a good friend of mine who's a member here, uh, Randy Long, a couple weeks ago. And Randy and I were having coffee and I was talking to him about um, just some business ideas. I was talking to him about my wife Haley's uh, interior design business. As we were talking about just the plans and possibilities and things like that, Uh, Randy looked up from, maybe I looked up from my coffee and Randy just kind of looked me in the eyes and said, hey, have uh, have you prayed about this? And immediately I was just kind of paralyzed in fear. I was like, no, I haven't. Here I am talking to you, strategizing, thinking about plans, thinking about moves ahead, and I haven't prayed. I haven't prayed about this thing that I'm talking about, and I'm choosing to be vulnerable in in that moment because it really does illustrate the text for this morning, um, how our pride basically can disconnect us from the reality of God's presence, that in our pride, our plans can push God out. And so we're going to hear, once again, kind of this indictment to the voice of pride and the presence of pride within us, and an appeal from what I would call the voice of humility from this text. And we often speak with confidence about a future we can neither predict nor control. And our minds and calendars are filled with plans that, if we're not careful, can be completely unhitched from our relationship with God. And so that's the thing I want to cement in your mind as we start. Is I think all of us, to different degrees and different moments, are guilty of just that. Like we fill our minds and we fill our calendars with plans that, if we're not careful, unhitch themselves from our relationship with God and His presence within us and before us as our King, as our treasure, and the one that we want to please. And so the way we speak often about our plans serves as the billboard for our independent hearts, and we assert things like, I will, with no reference to His will. Yeah, we're going to hear about that in this text this morning. Maybe just a couple questions to ask as we start is, how much consideration do you give to God in the course of your day? How much consideration do I give to God in the course of my planning, my preparation? As I'm making moves, even trying to make bucks, as we'll see in this text, as part of the, the challenge that James lays out. Are we professing Christians, but, but we live as functional atheists with very little reference to God, or worse yet, even a calculated indifference to God? And in our pride, I think we can end up there easier than we'd like to imagine So this morning, we'll look at the third of three probing questions in chapter four, which together paint the picture of a deep, multi-layered battle that we have with pride. And the first question at the beginning of chapter four is, what causes tension and quarrels among you? It's your prideful pursuits. It's your selfish passions. That was kind of question number one. The second question that comes more in the the rebuke is who are you to judge? Is this prideful self-elevation that causes us to slander, to speak against, and to judge other people in pride and in arrogance. And the question for this morning, or the the layer of pride this morning, is the pride of presumption that our pride excludes God from our plans. And so let's read chapter four, verses thirteen through seventeen. A fairly brief section with one little verse that you probably have heard before about how short our life is. But let's read starting in verse 13. This is God's word for us this morning. James four, thirteen. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So there's a way we could divide this section into maybe two statements. One is this what we say, and the second is, what we should say. And the first captured in that question or the address to come on now, all of you who say we're going to go do this and that, is kind of what we say. That's capturing what we do in our pride. So traveling and trading were a massive part of the economy and the culture of the day. James seems to be addressing, even in his audience as scattered believers, even in the church where he serves, those who are making moves as merchants to to make money making plans to make bucks. And so he's speaking to them to make sure they don't disconnect from the fact that, that God is present and should be present in their plans because he's the Lord of their lives. So for you planners who are starting to get a little nervous, like James isn't knocking making plans. For those of you who are entrepreneurs, business owners, like James isn't even knocking making money in business pursuits. What he's addressing is in all those things in our planning and making moves to make money is God present in them. As you do those things, as you plan, as you you build a business, as you pursue things, as you put things on your calendar, you have them in your mind, ask yourself the question, is there a place for God in my plans? Or do we speak with certainty about things we have no control of? Do we pray for God to to guide our plans or do we pray for him just to bless those plans we've already made? And that's, that convicted me this week. Like, am I, am I quick to make my plans and on the backside, say, God, hey, by the way, would you just put your hand on this? Or is there consideration before anything materializes, like, God, are you in this? Would you, go, would you shut it down if it's not of you? And those things are very, those are two very different postures. One that assumes our plan is right and just merely ask for the blessing of God on it. The other one that assumes we may not see things right, and our plans may not be right, and we want God to intervene if that, in fact, is the case. And we may be familiar with, and even believe in, Solomon's charge in Proverbs sixteen three that says this, commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. And if there was a A sinful man version of the Bible it might read something like this in that passage. Commit to your work and establish your plans. And that's what we often do. Like we don't do Proverbs 16 13, commit your work to the Lord and he'll be the one that establishes your plans. Instead what we do is we commit to our work and we establish our plans. There's a notable absence of the Lord in that sentence. And that's what James is getting at. I know what I will do, and I have the ability to do it. Our pride presumes what we will do, and also that we have the ability to do exactly what we want to do. And in both accounts, it is a, an indictment to the pride within us. And in verse 14, we see the first layer of James's kind of response to this group of people he's addressing. Verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Why do you speak with certainty about tomorrow when you don't even have control over what it will bring? Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He says, there are two great certainties about the future. One is that God knows, and the second is that you do not. Those are two realities as it relates to the future. God knows the future, and I do not. And those should anchor us in a place of humility as we seek to to make plans, make moves, as it were, with our lives, on our schedules, in our minds. If we're not careful, our lack of control over tomorrow, let's think about this, like practically, what does this do? There's a way, if you're not careful, our lack of control over tomorrow can produce two unbiblical things. It can produce anxiety, and it can produce passivity, And let me just take a minute to kind of shepherd us through that. Anxiety and passivity. Anxiety because we can't stand the notion of not being in control of tomorrow. Anybody relate to that? Put your hand up right now. We all struggle with that. Like if we can't be in control, automatically what sets in is this feeling of deep anxiety. And so the theological reality that we don't have tomorrow in control is unsettling to the hearts of men. To all of us. But the indictment is sit down, stop listening to yourself, listen to God and start preaching to yourself that he's in control and you are not. And it may very well be today that God wants, you to, wants to reveal to you that the moments when you were not anxious about tomorrow weren't because you were trusting in him, but because you had given into the illusion of your own control for the moment that had given you a temporary security that will only but be for a moment. And so one of the things I'd love to happen this morning is that, that God would, would, would take our hands off the illusion of control in spaces where we've yet to submit to him, but just capture the illusion of control and stability because we've had just enough control to keep ourselves comfortable, but yet not submitted to him. I don't know what that is for you, but I encourage you to ponder that reality because I think we all wrestle with that. We build this sand castle of our own plans held up by a temporary illusion of control. And in Matthew chapter six, verses 25 through 34, Jesus commands us not to be anxious, and, and he gives the picture of the birds of the air and the flowers and how they're provided for and clothed. and he says, "Hey, don't worry about tomorrow." And he highlights some pretty substantial primary things: food, drink, clothing. Like, those are relatively primary things. He says, don't worry about those things. Why? One, because when you worry, you can't add one moment to your life. It doesn't help. And secondly, you have a Father in heaven who will take care of you. Therefore, don't be anxious. But instead, seek God first and his ways, his righteousness, and all these things, notably, the fundamental realities that we need in life, all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, but trust in God. So one unbiblical response can be anxiety when we think about the fact we don't have tomorrow in control, but quite different from passivity or indifference, the Christian life is to be lived out with a deep sense of urgency and vitality for the the current moment for today. Ephesians 5 captures it this way. It says, The light of Christ has turned our, as believers, as Christians, our dark night into daytime. And so now we're, we're called children of light. Like The light is so near, so present within the people of God. We are called children of light. As a result, here's what we're called to do. We're, we're called and empowered to live each day carefully, intentionally, not passively, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. A couple of things I want to share here, just as it relates to pursuing God's will and determining the future, because I think there's a lot of confusing teaching in the church and in Christian thought as it relates to the will of God. So for many teachers, Bible teachers, those who write books, you might run across some who give you the impression or the distinct proposition that you have a secret will of God for your life that you have to find. And the implication is if you don't, you're going to screw up your life. And that is not biblical. But there is a secret will of God in the sense that we don't know ultimately God's will for all things. There's a good friend of mine. James once said years ago, he's like, Hey, when, when there's no red lights, you have green lights. And so our lives are filled with all sorts of decisions that we are called and allowed to make. And so don't give in to the lie that you don't have the freedom to make decisions. And in making those decisions, often God will lead, redirect, change the course of your plans. There's a book written by Kevin DeYoung called Just Do Something, and even the title kind of captures that reality. Don't be paralyzed by thinking you're going to screw up God's will for your life. If it doesn't defy the word of God, then you have freedom to make decisions. And God is a good father who leads his children even in our making of decisions. One other wise bit of counsel as it relates to God's will, I heard from Charles Stanley who recently passed away. I didn't hear from him directly, but listening to a sermon years ago, uh, one of the first times I listened to him, I've never forgotten it, and he basically said this. I think this captures what he said. He says, when you're, when you're trying to figure out God's will for your life, just make sure you haven't already made up your mind. And it's one of the most helpful sentences about trying to live according to the will of God I've ever heard. Because I think, and it captures the, the, the ethos of this text It's like, don't disconnect your decisions from your walk with God. Don't exclude God from your decisions and your pursuit of the future. But make the most every day, not walking as unwise, but as wise. In a way that might be surprising to our prideful hearts, as we humble ourselves before God, acknowledging we have no control over tomorrow, we get filled with security and not anxiety. And we're marked with intentionality in our steps, not passivity. So as we go on in the text, just in case we aren't humbled by our lack of control over what tomorrow will bring, James says, maybe you'll be humbled by the fact that you don't even know if you're going to have a tomorrow. And so he escalates his argument, like, hey, you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. By the way, your life is really short. You don't even, you don't know how many tomorrows you have. You don't even know if you have tomorrow, singular And none of us like to camp in that reality. Like we don't like to sit underneath the weight of like, I don't have a guarantee for tomorrow. I don't have a guarantee. I'm going to be here next Sunday to preach the gospel to you. And if we just, if we were somehow able to sit under the profound weight of the fact that we don't even know if we have tomorrow, like what would change in us? If we walked in light of that every single moment, at the very least, I think what we would experience is a deep sense of humility and a deep sense of urgency for every moment. Because they're so fleeting, they're so few. They're so quick to pass, and that's what he highlights next. The voice of humility calls out, it says, what is your life? Like you who say you're gonna do this and that, disconnected from your relationship, like what what is your life? Like it's like a mist. It vanishes so quickly, it's here one moment and gone the next, it's a vapor. And that picture connects with so much in the Old Testament. I'll highlight just a couple quick verses. Psalm 102, verse 11 says, My days are like an evening shadow, I wither away like grass. Job 9, 25, My days are swifter than a runner, they flee away. Now some of you may be thinking to yourself, like, hey, I don't run that fast, so that's good news for me. But we're talking about a runner. A runner. Someone who's a good runner on purpose. They're fast. Your life moves like that. Like someone who is a quick runner that you can't keep up with. My days are swifter than a runner and they flee away. I was talking to the family about this last night. We we're just talking about things that, we, things that we experience in life that seem to go really quickly. And sometimes you, you go through the preparation of like Thanksgiving meal, Christmas meal, it takes hours to get ready for. And like 15 minutes later, you're like, well, there it was. It was pretty good, but man, that was a lot of work for 15 minutes. And that's a, it captures a little bit of like, man, that was so fast. There was so much that went into that, but man, it was just gone in the blink of an eye. And that really captures what James is communicating. Like, what is your life? Like, what's my life? Like it's, it's here one moment. If you could capture it through squeezing a mist into the air. It's like that comes out with force and then all of a sudden it dissipates. It's gone. So who are we to try to move about in our plans apart from God, the one who captures and knows and has control of our endless tomorrows? Life moves quickly while it's here and it also isn't here very long. Psalm 90, verse 12, among other things, Psalm 90, the beginning of it captures the fleeting, fleeting nature of life. and The psalmist says this, as our days are soon gone and we fly away. In verse 12, it goes on to say, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The family, I just, as I've been thinking about this this week, I, just, I think one response that we should have is just to beg God. Just to beg God for help to see our life as fleeting and temporary. Because if, as, as if somehow the enemy pushes deep enough into our minds and our hearts, this notion, even though we, don't, we know it's not true, this feeling of perpetual tomorrows, there's a victory there for our enemy if we've bought into the illusion that we can just put off eternal things for our tomorrows, then we bought into a lie. We're no longer walking according to the truth because what, like, what is your life? like? You don't have, I don't have any guarantee for tomorrow, so live today hitched tightly to the, the word of God, to the spirit of God, begging for God to fill us with a sense of his will that we might might consider deeply what he wants us to do with our days. A.W. Tozer captured this sentiment in this way. He says, We stand in the valley between the mountain peaks of eternity past and eternity to come. The past is gone forever, and the present is passing as swiftly as the shadow on the sundial. Even if the earth should continue a million years, not one of us could stay to enjoy it. We would do well to think of our long tomorrow. The long tomorrow he refers to is after this life. Like we will have endless tomorrows, but this life is not filled with endless tomorrows. Those endless tomorrows begin after we leave this life, and here we have very limited tomorrows. We have no control over what they'll bring nor do we have any control over how many we have. So make your life count now. Live for Christ now. Obey Him now. Make those decisions you know please Him now, today, without hesitation. Today is brief and tomorrow is long, so live today in light of our long tomorrow. First part captures what we say. Now James gives us what we must say. Verse 15 Instead, converse, contrasting to, hey, I'm going to do this and that. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. The Latin phrase, Dio valente, God willing. So, so let me just say this, in case it's not clear. I don't want everybody next Sunday when you come in here, every sentence you say being followed up with like, hey, God willing. That is not the intent of this passage nor this sermon to create a bunch of like God-willing robots. It's like, hey, I'm going to go get some breakfast. Oh, God willing. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to get up now. My alarm went off. I mean, if the Lord wills, I'll get up. That's not the intent. It's not meant to become like some robotic Christian cliche that you just kind of rotely say at the end of every sentence, almost like you're afraid, <laughs> you're afraid to be presumptuous. That's not the intent of this. But I would say it this way, much like the Lord's Prayer, the issue is the posture and not the phrase. So Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 is a prayer, certainly, it captures Jesus' response to how should we pray. And if you don't know how to pray, it's a great place to start. But it's not meant to be some Christian incantation where you just robotically utter some sentences and you got it covered. The issue is we want to live like kingdom people. Here's how a kingdom person acts. You have a father in heaven, and his name is hallowed. We want his kingdom to come. We want his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want him to provide for our needs, not so much that we forget about him, not so little that we clamor and take control for ourselves. We want to forgive as we've been forgiven because his is the power and the glory, right? That's the posture of a redeemed son and daughter of God. It's not just some Christian cliche or slogan to put on a t-shirt or a mug or to put at the end of every sentence, but it is about a posture. Are we dependently seeking God for all our decisions in life? Do we leave room for God in our plans? More importantly, do we root our plans in the will of God? Are we submitted enough in our plans in life that we can hold our plans up to heaven and be resolved for his will to be done? And here's the deal. Even if it means that our will will not be done, and that's the wrestle, right? Because we want, like we're terrible at evaluating our own hearts and ideas and plans. So the submitted heart to Jesus says, just like Jesus said to his father, I'd rather not drink this cup. If there's any other way for this to happen, let it happen. Ultimately, though, not my will, but your will be done. And so for the, the people of God, for Christians, for us as a church, what this passage means for us is just like the rest of the book, that we are be, we're to be people conformed to the image of Jesus in every area of our lives, in our speech, our posture toward other people the way we resolve conflict, the way we deal with tribulations and trials, and the way we speak about, and the way we deal with our future. And one of the comforting realities in the Bible is that when it comes to God's will, as much as we don't like to believe this at times, there's absolutely no improving on the will of God. So when you're submitted to the will of God, you're submitted to that which is good and pleasing, and perfect. That is such a comfort to wayward hearts. Because as you go from here, and I go from here, and we struggle with the will of God because it's expressed and confusing twists and turns. We're like, Lord, why? And I don't understand. And those questions are real. It's okay to ask those questions. But when we're resolved to see the will of God done, we're resolved to see his good, perfect, and pleasing will because he's a good and perfect and pleasing father to his children. And he knows better than you. And he knows better than me. And he's gracious and kind and patient with us in all of our rebellion all of our planning apart from him. In verse 16, which captures this almost amplified picture of pride, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. It may even be that for us, that our independence in life has not only led us to exclude God from our plans, but to actually boast about how well we are doing by ourselves. That's what this means. You're boasting in the fact that you're operating independently from God. Now, most of us are kind of street smart enough not to walk around with that posture, but maybe inwardly, if we scan just for a moment, it might be there more than we think. As we think about our business or our grades or our place in life or our family or this or that, do we find ourselves subtly thinking, what is my faithfulness? is my ingenuity is my gifts my plans my personality most of us know that, that doesn't play very well socially but god sees in secret and do our like the hidden motives of our heart reflect a posture a boasting in our arrogance maybe a little bit like nebuchadnezzar if you haven't read daniel chapter 4 before it's an interesting read Nebuchadnezzar was a Babylonian king. It's a point in time where he was walking around, like surveying Babylon. And as he saw it, he's like, man, I have done great work. This is good stuff. Look at my glory on display. So his heart was very much what you see as that boasting in arrogance. He says, In Daniel 4.30, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. And it's worth saying right here, to go back to what we studied a little bit earlier in chapter 4, God is opposed to the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And a lesson from Daniel chapter 4 might be that, hey, don't be prideful and assume the glory. Otherwise, God's going to have you on all fours eating grass (laughs) like an oxen because that's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. But you know what the sweet picture is? I actually think we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Because the end of that story is he is humbled, and he praises God for his majesty and his might. And shouldn't that be us? Like even this morning, like like we have a Nebuchadnezzar kind of moment. We're humbled by the fact we've been walking independently from God, stealing his glory, but he graciously receives us back when we humble ourselves before him. That's why we gather every Sunday, because we need to do just that, every single Sunday, different ways. Be amazed by grace again and come to him again to throw ourselves upon Jesus, the one who is the forgiver of sinners. In verse 17, we'll close off with this. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin." And we may say that we believe the Bible, but if we fail to do what it, it says, what good is that? That's one of James's mega messages. For the one who knows the right thing to do, namely to humble yourselves before God and trust your plans to Him and trust your life to Him. If you don't do it, like what good is that? What faith does that demonstrate? And the answer is none. And you might be in this room, like you might not be a Christian in this room, and I just want to take a minute to kind of speak from this text to you as maybe someone who's on the outside looking in, like you're not, you know how you ended up here. Or maybe you're just kind of skeptical, or maybe asking questions, and I'm grateful that you're here. But if I could just for a moment maybe repackage some of the initial question or statement that James makes in verse 13, it might sound something like this. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow I will consider getting serious about my relationship with God sometime soon I will consider the claims of Christ and surrender to him. That might be you this morning. You might just be putting off for a future day, maybe once you get a little older, like where, you're, where, you're okay, where you're okay, maybe a little bit more being tethered to your faith, or maybe you have a family and get serious because other people will be involved. Like maybe, that's, maybe that's you this morning. Here's what James's response would be to that proposition. He'd say, what is your life? Like What is your life that you presume to know? How many minutes, how many hours, how many days are left for you to respond? Your life is a quickly vanishing mist. It is here one moment and gone the next, so respond today. Don't put off for tomorrow the thing that God is calling you to do today. Run to Jesus Christ for life. One of the pictures we see spiritually in the Bible is that like all of us try to to drink and find living water from broken, dry cisterns in the world. And there might be temporary water that gives you some relief. There might be things that feel good in this life. But like Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter four, the, the water that you drink from this world is only gonna leave you thirsty again. But when you drink from Jesus the one who gives you rivers of living water inwardly, you'll never thirst again. Run to him today. Believe in him today. For you, Christian, church family, when we talk about faith in action, what we're saying is that when we belong to Jesus, we become more like him. With the deep sorrow and the trouble of the cross looming, Jesus prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Having been saved by Jesus, like my prayer for us as a church family is that we look increasingly like him in our prayer and in our posture. That the prideful presumption of we will or my will would be replaced by the humility of if you will or as you will in our lives. Amen? Amen. Now let's pray God it's, it's no doubt that um it takes so much work. in fact, it's a lifelong work to to unearth uh, the various shades of our independence and pride and rebellion and so i pray that in some small way some small but eternally significant way today that our hearts have been stirred that maybe the the soil of our pride has been disturbed that we might be able to move away from self-reliance and pride assuming that we can do with our tomorrows what we want, and assuming that we have perpetual tomorrows, would you fill us with a deep sense of urgency in our lives to want to please you moment by moment, and also to want to make you known. God, as your people, we are a curious, called-out family of faith, living temporarily in this world, and as long as you leave us here, we've got a job to do to make you known, Jesus that the thing that you've done to us, you've reconciled us to the Father, you've now given us as a ministry that other people might be reconciled to you. You make your appeal through your people that men and women be reconciled to God. Help us to live as missionaries and help our mission to be urgent, to be perpetual, to be a constant drumbeat because we know that a moment that's not too far off, we will have lost the opportunity to speak to the many, even this morning, that are without Jesus. And if there's any person in this room, God, that doesn't know you, but there's something in their heart that's been moved to consider their own pride and own rebellion against you, God, I pray that you do it only you can do, soften the human heart to turn it from stone into flesh that today would be the day of salvation. There's no verse in the Bible that says, tomorrow will be the tomorrow of salvation. Make today the day of salvation. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your unimaginable grace, that while we were dead in our sins, you saved us and made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved through faith. We trust you by faith and ask you to help us to honor you with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand together.